warm welcome from the north of Iceland. My name is Yvonne Höller and I am a professor in psychology at the University of Akureyri. And this is the podcast that is linked to the lecture Cognitive Neuroscience. And I'm very happy to announce that today I have again special guests, this time two uh, guests from Salzburg and Innsbruck, that are two beautiful towns in Austria. And we are going to talk about a very special research topic that has kept us busy for the past three years. It is high frequency oscillations in the brain. So this is a topic that when I first heard about, I thought like, this is bullshit. <laughs> because when, when I was told about it, I said, no, this is not possible. This is just something that is not possible. I have been doing EEG research for a couple of years before I heard about high frequency oscillations and the oscillations in the brain that I'm concerned with start at one hertz, so things that happen one time per second in the brain and they go up to 10 hertz. 10 hertz is one of the most important oscillations in the brain, the alpha rhythm. And then they go up to faster rhythms, 20 hertz, 40 hertz, at most 80 hertz. And everything beyond, I was told by one of my first supervisors, is just noise. So it was not too surprising that I thought this is bullshit when Professor Trinka, my boss at the uh, University Hospital for Neurology in Salzburg, said, oh, we are now doing high frequency oscillation research beyond 250 hertz. I thought like, well, I can also, yeah read in my coffee what is going on in the brain if i do that <laughs> um so that's enough about the introduction to this <laughs> uh, i would like to introduce now my two guests adrian and philip adrian would you like to start yes thanks for having us uh, so i'm adrian marco i'm currently doing my master's thesis in psychology uh, with a focus on cognitive neuroscience and yeah for two years i think i've been working on hfo so high frequency oscillation touch um yeah um, that's about it I think. wonderful thank you adrian and philip how about you yeah hi thanks for having us uh, my name is philip um i'm actually studying at the Medical University of beautiful Innsbruck, like you mentioned before. And the way I got into neuroscience was about an internship um, at the Christian Doppler Clinic in Salzburg. So I met Josh, um, who has already been a guest in your podcast here. Um, I met him at the University of Salzburg back then when I was studying psychology and he was giving a lecture about common myth in neuroscience. Um, I think it was about epilepsy and the moon. Um, and then he told the students that there's a possibility of an internship. So I asked him and he said yes. And I learned a lot and somehow it catched me. Um, yeah, and after my internship, you offered me this job. And that's the way I got into neuroscience. Now we're here. <laughs> yeah, that's a very common entrance into research that you get an internship. And after the internship, you get a job. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> Yeah, very, very common. Yeah, and uh, some people like me never uh, 
quit this job again like it was really similar in my case yeah <laughs> yeah so let's go back to the high frequency oscillations this coffee prediction of what <laughs> the eg is the brain is doing <laughs> okay um high frequency oscillations are very very tiny events that you can see in the eg only if you look at it very very closely and i was not at all interested in doing research on this when i first heard about it i thought like okay this is nothing for me because i did not believe it but then in our team the in interests in this topic increased and uh, finally we decided that we have to do something about it because it became such a hype in epilepsy research and because my former boss professor trinker at the department of neurology was the epilepsy expert he of course wanted us to be at the forefront of current research topics and high frequency oscillations were one of the core topics back then so i started by collaborating with julia jacobs who is one of the yeah, most known experts on high frequency oscillations she has been doing this research in Freiburg, now she's in Canada. We're still collaborating, not on high frequency not only on high frequencies, also other stuff. And she's very, very nice and a great researcher, very inspiring. And yeah, we invited her and it was so wonderful to have her in Salzburg. And she taught us how to detect the high frequency oscillations. And when I looked at the EEG with her and she said, yeah, well, this is uh, high frequency oscillations. I was like, oh yeah they really exist <laughs> yeah and then we we started yeah looking at those high frequency oscillations in invasive recordings because we did also invasive recordings in patients with epilepsy and they might benefit from this additional biomarker according to the literature so this is what we did we looked at the high frequency oscillations and the consequence of all of this yeah, learning and doing was that we got so interested that we wrote a grant application. I wrote one. The first attempt was a rejection. That is, it is very rare that you write a big grant application and then you get the money immediately. Like here in Iceland, I wrote a grant application. Now I submitted it for a fourth time last year. It was rejected four times. Now I have to resubmit it a fifth time. So. In Austria, the high frequency oscillation project, I think it, I got the money at the second attempt. And it's like a large project, it's more than 300,000 euros. And the topic of the project is whether we can record high frequency oscillations not only invasive, in invasive EG, in patients that undergo pre surgical evaluation of epilepsy, but also on the surface. So the point um, about these high frequency oscillations is that patients with epilepsy sometimes do not respond to medication so they get one drug and still have seizures they get two drugs they still have seizures they get a third drug they still have seizures then they get a different drug they get higher dosage nothing helps and then the consequence is that the doctors might wish to evaluate which part of the brain causes the seizures and they might wish to investigate whether it is possible to surgically remove that part of the brain without 
having cognitive side effects such that the patient might be seizure free because the part of the brain that is obviously defective is not there anymore. Um, it is not always straightforward to identify that part that creates, that generates the seizures, the so-called epileptogenic zone. We can determine which part of the brain um, shows epileptic activity. We can, we can easily show which part of the brain is involved in the seizure. We can show in which part of the brain does the seizure start. But all of these regions are not necessarily the region that causes the seizures. And we don't have a biomarker for this so-called epileptogenic zone. And the big hope in this HFO hype was that high frequency oscillations would be the biomarker that shows us which part of the brain do we need to cut out to help the patients. Um, in high frequency oscillations, we have like slow high frequency oscillations. They are between yeah, 80 and 250 hertz. And then we have the faster ones above 250 hertz. And then there's even the ultra fast. They are even faster. Um, I did a meta-analysis that was also, that was a bachelor project. I had two uh, mathematics students. And we did a meta-analysis together about high-frequency oscillations and we found that the effects are rather small. So removing the part of the brain that has these high-frequency oscillations does only slightly lead to better post-surgical outcomes, so to less seizures than not removing that part of the brain. But still, there was a big hype about these high-frequency oscillations. And because of this meta-analysis, I got somehow popular in the community. And this was the only paper I've written back then. But the meta-analysis was so yeah, well received because it was well done because of the mathematical uh, background of my um, the two bachelor students and my nice colleague Arne Batke, professor in statistics in Salzburg. So therefore, I got the opportunity to talk about this meta-analysis at uh, the high frequency oscillation workshop in Freiburg and after that I got this grant and in this grant I hired Adrian and Philip and yeah maybe Philip you want to tell us now what we are doing in this project what what kind of data do we collect and what are we doing differently from in our project from other projects yeah at first thanks for the hiring it's paying my rent um, <laughs> The difference between our study and previous research um, is that we use Scalp EG for the recording of the data instead of invasive methods um, like, for example, microelectrodes or subterrotic grid. So we use a high-density EG. That's an EG um, with uh, approximately 260 electrodes, I think, compared to a normal 1020 EG with about yeah 29 electrodes i think we're using in salzburg and this method was used because of a higher spatial resolution regarding the event detection um, in our case this is important because like you've mentioned before these oscillations are very small um, and there are only fine-grained differences between real hfos and artifacts so we need a a high sensitive method for the recording um, yeah otherwise it's like watching a 4k movie on a tube tv from the 90s and that's the big difference of our study um, 
compared to to other research i think yeah thank you that's that's very true we we also tried to um, establish like a standard how to detect those high frequency oscillations because in our experience it was so frustrating to look at data someone else had already collected because if you look at the data then you might say well okay the rater in the university hospital xy in some place of the world yeah. considered this event as an hfo but we did not we said like no this is an artifact yeah. maybe adrian you you would like to talk about this visual identification what does this look like when we look at the eg and uh, how long does it take why is it so difficult why are we sometimes desperate um yeah sure so for the visual identification we use an in-house software called mejips where we import our data um it's important that we filter the data uh, at to eliminate the noise at 50 hertz and all its derivatives and then we also filter the data um to only show us activity over 80 hertz the activity in which we're interested and we have certain criteria that an event must um, meet in order to be considered an HFO so for instance um, it has to have at least four consecutive oscillations in the filtered signal it has to have a regular morphology um, it has to stand out from the background signal and also um, a superimposed fast activity has to be visible in the raw data. Um, when we're looking at the data, we also have EMG channel that helps us to discriminate between real high frequency oscillations and activity that is caused by muscle movement or muscle artifacts that might look like an... Um, yeah. So usually we create segments of about one minute for each task that the patient does in the recording. Um, this might sound like not too much, but um, you have to imagine we have about 124 EG channels that we're interested in. And we usually look at six channels at once. And this whole process takes about on average, I think, eight hours per segment. So we usually have three segments per patients. And uh, yeah, that takes a lot of time. And um, also, we detect rather few events, which can be a bit demotivating, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> so it's eight hours for one minute. And there are a lot of events that are no HFOs. So the question is always, if you see something, is it really an HFO or is it an artifact? Um, well, the point about doing this manually is actually that everyone in the world has done it manually in the beginning. But because it's so time consuming, there was very soon the 
claim or we need some automated detection because otherwise this will never never find its way into clinical practice because I mean, which doctor has time to sit for eight hours in front of one minute of EG to detect some tiny events that might be uh, epileptogenic biomarker or an artifact? So no doctor has time to do that. And the clinics usually don't have the money to pay people like Adrian and Philip to do that. So <laughs> the idea was that automatic detectors could help out. And there were a lot of computer scientists in the world who developed automated detectors. And my meta-analysis was also about whether uh, automated detection has the same, uh, like, yeah, effect as visual detection. And actually I found in the meta-analysis that it, it doesn't matter whether they do it visually or automated. Automated is not inferior to visual. So why are we still doing it visually? Well, in order to develop an automated detector, you have to train the computer on some ground truth. So our, our automated detection algorithms all work on invasive EEG, but they don't work on scalp EEG because scalp EEG looks much different from invasive EEG. You have much more noise from the environment, artifacts and so on. So it's not really, meaningful to use an automatic detector that was developed for invasive EG on the scalp. However, um, we are trying to use them and we are trying to improve them by creating a ground truth. So based on the markings that Philip and Adrian are doing, we might improve automated detectors or adapt them to the scalp situation. Well, yes, and that's then not the only problem that we have. Another problem that we have is we do not only have HFOs and artifacts, we also do have different kinds of HFOs. We have high frequency oscillations that are uh, pathologic, so linked to epilepsy. And we have those that are physiologic. They are linked to saccades, so eye movements. They are linked to motor, um, yeah, motoric activity. They are linked to memory and so on. So it's really difficult to find uh, yeah to distinguish which is a relevant one for the clinical question and which not so philip what do you think about um hfos detected by you and adrian how much overlap <laughs> is there in what you find and what adrian finds i mean this is a question about validity and objectivity of of visual detection. Yeah, right? that's a good question, and um, that's these are big challenges um, in HFO research that has to be addressed um, because, especially when events are marked manually, so the inter-radar reliability between independent radars, um, in this case between me and Adrian, is very small, um, even if they are very experienced. So. Um, this is due to several reasons. Um, for example, like you mentioned before, artificial distortions, which are very common in the scalp EG. So it's not always possible for us to, to keep the background oscillations low. Um, and another reason may be the different localization of HFO generating areas. So it's more difficult to detect events arising from deep brain structures like the thalamus um, which is involved in, in many tasks 
compared to neocortical events. Um, and this is the place where most of the, the scalp EG studies reported HFOs. So these are the challenges some um, future research has to address. And furthermore, like you also mentioned before, um, with the standardized protocol, we have to know what we are searching for. Okay, so both raters um, need a consensus. So everybody's speaking of the same when talking about high frequent oscillations. And this is, this is absolutely required for, for valid and objective um, generation of a ground truth these detectors work with. And it's also discussed controversially because there are some detectors, some automatic detectors, but they are not comparable to each other because of the different ground truth they're working on. Yeah, that's very true. So, Adrian, do you think our standardized protocol for identification can help out here? especially with these artifacts? Um, yes, I think so. I mean, when this protocol was developed, we looked at all the evidence in the literature and tried to uh, have a very objective protocol. Um, I think it helps. So while Philip and I don't usually mark the same events, um, when we look at what the other person identified we usually agree so there's usually a consensus in that regard so yeah i think it helps yeah the problem is i think with these inter-rater disagreements um, an automated algorithm might be very sensitive so it might not miss an hfo but it's not very specific so it marks everything various um you uh, the manual or the visual markers you are like detecting only real hfos but you may miss one and then it's good if you have two raters and then agree on what the other found like say okay i, I agree this is an hfo and just have overlooked yeah that's true yeah exactly yeah um philip what is so attractive <laughs> in using the HFOs on the scalp instead of invasive oh. HFOs. I mean, if it, were, if it is so much worse on the scalp, why are we doing that at all? Yeah, because it, it has a big potential. Um, besides the aforementioned problems, I think it would be great for several reasons to use these scalp recorded HFOs as a marker for neural disease, like in our case, epilepsy. Um, and we know that there are a lot of patients suffering from epilepsy without the need of an invasive examination. Um, you mentioned it at the beginning, the, these, these are big surgeries and also bear some risks for the patients. And for those people, it would be great if a new marker, additionally to the traditional ones used in the hospitals, like for example, interictal spikes, um, and if these scalp recorded HFOs could help to clarify the seizure onset zone or the epileptogenic zone or any other characteristic of, of, of the disease, um, I think that this would be great for the patients and, and also for the physicians. But before we transfer HFO as a diagnostic marker in the clinical routine, um, which is already the case in some hospitals, I think it's important to further examine um, factors 
that are influencing these markers um, and which are not entirely investigated yet. Like, um, yeah, in our case, um, age, for example. Yeah, we that's the point. We are currently working on several publications together. Yeah, we did. Maybe, Adrian, would you like to start off by telling us what your master thesis is about? Yes, of course. So, because I was so interested in high-frequency oscillations, I was offered the opportunity to also write my master's thesis in that domain, which I did. However, I did not use our scalp EEG data, but um, I used invasive EEG from patients that underwent uh, resective surgery in in the last seven years. And I tried to see, like the earlier studies did, whether there is a link between removing brain tissue that generates high-frequency oscillations and the possible seizure-free outcome patient after surgery. Um, yeah, it has said that uh, HFOs didn't, were not included in the, in the decision process when doing the surgery, so it was a retrospective study. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, the sample size was quite small because a uh, few patients refused surgery. I, I was left with a total sample size of seven, six patients. And unfortunately for me, or fortunately for the patients, most of them were seizure-free after surgery. And that, in combination with a small sample size, um, I wasn't able to find a clear link between removing HFO-generating tissue and um, the surgical outcome. Um, mm. Yeah, in a lot of patients, uh, no regions HFOs were removed, and they still achieved seizure freedom. So, yeah. Oh. That sounds like a bit discouraging with respect to HFOs being a marker for the area that needs to be removed. Well, we have learned that there are several factors that need to be um, yeah, considered when you think of HFO as a biomarker. So there are like physiological HFOs, we should not remove them, of course. And we are trying to distinguish physical physiological, so, yeah, HFOs linked to cognitive processes, for example, so these type of HFOs from the pathological version. And uh, recently it was also reported that HFOs are linked to aging. Philip, we have just the day before yesterday submitted our first research yeah. paper to a special issue <laughs> about HFO and aging. Would you like to tell us briefly what this yeah, is? Yeah, our study looked um, at a possible relationship between HFOs and age because we know that in, in elderly patients there is uh, there are some changes in the brain um, which can lead to to um, epilepsy and we compared younger to older patients in terms of the HFO rate um, because there are studies that report um, such a link here um, but we could not prove this link in the scalp EEG um, and that's the big difference these earlier studies 
um, were conducted using invasive EEG and we are the first as far as I know or one of the first to look at the association in the scalp EEG and the Hadi EEG um, and yeah although there was no di signif significant difference between the old and young our work um, nevertheless points to some important factors that need to be considered in future studies in scalp EEG yeah for example the much feared signal to noise ratio or an adequate sample size um, which is also a problem uh, i mean a big problem in neuroscience um, and which is not always so easy to achieve in clinical studies i mean you, you know it the best yvonne um, we have to work with what we get i think <laughs> Yeah. yeah, indeed. It's not no, always it, easy, it isn't. especially yeah. clinics, yeah, to recruit. But I mean, we, we are very thankful for, for every patient um, we get in our studies because they, they make it possible to do this very important basic research on the field. But yeah, maybe, maybe it could be more. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, one sort of approach is to like do multi-center studies. So you recruit patients across multiple uh, clinics, but still with HFO research, we have just learned that it takes so much time to visually mark exactly. the HFOs. So even if you have 100 patients, then you have to visually analyze them all. So then the manpower that you have is the Yeah, exactly. Factor. And the, the next problem with these multi-clinical trials is that um, every clinic uses its own standardized protocols for HFO identification. So back to the consent exactly. problem. Mm. Or also different yeah. types of recordings. So it's, it's, yeah, exactly. it's difficult. Uh, the signal to noise ratio was, by the way, heavily researched by the research group around Johannes Santheim in Zürich. They have developed like a special amplifier to improve the signal to noise ratio so that is supposed to be the future for scalp eg but when we started our project this was yeah. not yet available so thank you so much uh, about these insights into our most recent research hopefully we will get this study published <laughs> yeah, i hope so too um <laughs> i would like to close this session by asking you about your very honest opinion i told you my first opinion on hfos was yeah this is reading reading eg activity from coffee and i mean the last hfo workshop i attended before covid in a neurological uh, conference in, in basel was very delighting because it was so honest how people um, yeah, we're talking about these HFOs and the thing that I found very helpful was um, the, yeah, the acknowledgement that there was an, an initial hype, then there was a huge frustration because the HFOs were not that biomarker that one expected them to be. And now people start to be more realistic. So I would like to ask the two of you, after years of HFO research, what is your feeling about this research topic? Maybe Adrian, would you okay. like to start? Well, Yvonne, you were very skeptical at first. Um, I have to say I was very enthusiastic at first. 
um, I encountered HFOs during my internship at the clinic when someone else on the team was doing HFO analysis and I was amazed by it. Um, then when I got the job uh, and started doing more identification, I started to lose trust in them, or at least in HFOs on the scalp. So, I don't know, in the last months after reading so much for my master's thesis and um, spending so much time on HFOs, I think they do have potential. They could help um, epilepsy patients in general. But yeah, we need better signal to noise ratio and better uh, higher sampling rates in order to be able to identify. So I'm a bit hopeful. Mm -hmm. You're a bit hopeful. That sounds good. Hope is always good. And Philip, yeah, what at do first, you think? I have to say I, I was a bit skeptical too because um, the problem we face in the field of scalp HFO research is uh, that we are looking for something of which we do not exactly know whether and in what form it exists um, using a method for which we do not know whether it's appropriate or applicable so sometimes i was sitting in front of my desktop and yeah was thinking about what i'm doing here but the more i've studied hfos in the last years the more confident i've become about the topic um, especially the last the last month um, when we were writing our paper because of course, it would be great to use HFOs as a marker in the clinical field at some point. And for me, it's it's a great honor to be able to make a contribution to this. So, yeah, let's see what comes along. That sounds also positive. It's always good to close a podcast with a positive <laughs> yeah. remark. Yeah. <laughs> and. I would, I'm very positive about your participation today. I thank you so much for it. It was a great yeah, pleasure you. to have you. Yeah, thank you. And I, I hope we can do something similar again, maybe with a different research yeah. topic in the future. And I thank our audience for joining in. I hope you enjoyed it, uh, the insights into practical research on EEG and I wish you a great day and I hope you stay tuned for the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.